0: Welcome back to the Barely Ghoul podcast. Uh, ooh, 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 Ben's testing his mic with some spooky sounds. Ooh. Ben, do you know what a creepy pasta is? Creepy pasta. I lived
1: on creepy pasta. It's like the stuff you eat, right? When you make it, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I when I was. Uh... When I was younger, I, I ate pasta all the time. Is that what you're talking about?
0: No, Benjamin, you dumb bimbo. We're talking about. Like, you didn't have to go
1: that far, but creepy
0: pastas, which are just creepy stories. I think they get their name from like copy and paste. Like, I think uh, copy and paste stories of like copy paste, uh, copy uh, pasta. Because like
1: copy pasta.
0: Yeah, copy pasta is a thing, and then these are the creepy versions, so it's like creepy pasta. Uh, Ooh. This episode is probably gonna deal with mature themes because we just picked random creepy pastas and we're gonna read them. It's gonna be real freaking spooky, so if you're a kid, Ooh. don't listen, you'll get spooked. And if you're my fiance, also, don't listen. <laughs> Stop listening now. You'll also get spooked. I know you don't like horror movies or stuff, so don't. This is going to be real spooky. Well, and if you like being spooked, then. Then keep on listening. Get in, get in
1: your comfiest pajami jammers. Get in your jammies. Shh, shut off all shut the lights. Shut off your lights. Get creepy. If you want to be like Judah, put on some creepy, weird LED lighting in your room. Purple! And and uh yeah open the closet door just
0: a crack. Ooh, and that's get good. Get
1: really <laughs> and get really into uh into this
0: creepy pasta. So we're moment. Ben and I are just going to take turns reading creepy pastas and maybe reacting to each other's creepy pastas that we're reading. We didn't write them. Uh but they are creepy and we're going to read them. And the music will change and it'll be extra spooky. Ooh so so I, da- I downloaded this uh
1: just now this app on the app store called scary sounds it's a soundboard. Oh. i'm gonna see if it has anything uh worth worth using oh yeah it, it doesn't some. it doesn't look like it does no wait it's a creepy door that is creepy electricity oh okay chains Nothing nothing too good here. Screams and roars cat.
0: Oh uh, that's yeah, classic that's the classic
1: cat scream. <laughs> God, that's a that's a human screaming. Okay. That might be useful later on in when I'm reading the story. Yeah. Okay. Anyways.
0: Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Um
1: you can go first because you probably have one up and ready to go.
0: I don't, but I'll I have a couple that I can load in. Alright, I've got one right here. I'm just going to move my Zoom window. Is this the, is this the Reddit one? No, I have a couple.
1: All right, I got a Reddit one that I'll read after you're done.
0: Yeah. We, I sent you separate ones than the ones I have. I've got we've got um, tons of creepy uh, pastas loaded up.
1: Tons of creepy pastas for your enjoyment. All right.
0: Let's, <laughs> right let's get in character. Getting the character. Music change now. All right. Welcome to the Barely Ghoul podcast. This is... Creepy pasta is called No End House. Listeners, beware! Alright, here we go. Let me start by saying that Peter Terry was addicted to heroin. We were friends in college and continued to be after I graduated. Notice that I said I. He dropped out after two years of barely cutting it. After I moved out of the dorms and into a small apartment, I didn't see Peter as much. We would talk online every now and then. AIM was king in pre-Facebook years. There was a period where he wasn't online for about five weeks straight. I wasn't worried. He was a pretty n- notorious flake and drug addict, so I assumed he'd just stop caring. Then one night, I saw him log on. Before I could initiate a conversation, he sent me a message. David, man, we need to talk. Wait. i got to switch it. Judah, man, we need to talk. Making it me. Mm-hmm. That was when he told me about the no-end house. It got that name because no one had ever reached the final exit. The rules were pretty simple and cliche. Reach the final room in the building and you win $500. There were nine rooms in all. The house was located outside the city, roughly four miles from my house. Apparently Peter had tried and failed. He was a heroin and who knows what the frick addict. So I figured the drugs got the best of him and he wigged out at a paper ghost or something. He told me it would be too much for anyone, that it was unnatural. I didn't believe him. I told him I would check it out the next night no matter how hard he tried to convince me otherwise five hundred dollars sounded too good to be true. Mm -hmm. I had to go. I set out the following night. When I arrived, I immediately noticed something strange about the building. Have you ever seen or read something that shouldn't be scary but for some reason a chill crawls up your spine? I walked toward the building and the feeling of uneasiness only intensified as I opened the front door. My heart slowed and I let a relief sigh leave me as I entered. Huh. The room looked like a normal hotel lobby, decorated for Halloween. A sign was posted in place of a worker. It read, Room 1 this way, 8 more to follow. Reach the end and you win! I chuckled and made my way to the first door. The first area was almost laughable. The decor resembled the Halloween Isle of a Kmart, complete with sheet ghosts and animatronic zombies that gave a static growl when you passed by. At the far end was an exit. It was the only door besides the one I entered through. I brushed through the fake spider webs and headed for the second room. I was greeted by fog as I opened the door to room two. The room definitely upped the ante in terms of technology. Not only was there a fog machine, but a bat hung from the ceiling and flew in a circle. Scary. They seemed to have a Halloween soundtrack that would find that one would find in a 99 cent store on loop somewhere in the room. I didn't see a stereo, but I guess they must have used a PA system. I stepped over a few toy rats that wheeled around and walked with a puffed chest across the next area. I reached for the doorknob, and my heart sank to my knees. I did not want to open that door. A feeling of dread hit me so hard I could barely even think. Logic overtook me after a few terrified moments, and I shook it off and entered the next room. Room three is where things began to change. On the surface, it looked like a normal room. There was a chair in the middle of the wood-paneled floor. A single lamp in the corner did a poor job of lighting the area, casting a few shadows across the floor and walls. That was the problem. Shadows. Plural. With the exception of the chairs, there were others. I had barely walked in the door and I was already terrified. It was at that moment that I knew something wasn't right. I didn't even think as I automatically tried to open the door I came through. It was locked from the other side. That set me off. Was someone locking the doors as I progressed? There was no way. I would have heard them. Was it a mechanical lock that set automatically? Maybe, but I was too scared to really think. I turned back to the room and the shadows were gone. The chair shadow remained, but the others were gone. I slowly began to walk. I used to hallucinate when I was a kid, so I wrote off the shadows as a figment of my imagination. I began to feel better as I made it to the halfway point of the room. I looked down as I took my steps, and that's when I saw it, or didn't see it. My shadow wasn't there. I didn't have time to scream. I ran as fast as I could to the other door and flung myself without thinking into the room beyond. The fourth room is possibly the most disturbing. As I closed the door, all lights seemed to be sucked out and put back into the previous room. I stood there, surrounded by darkness, not able to move. I'm not afraid of the dark and never have been, but I was absolutely terrified. All sight had left me. I held my hand in front of my face, and if I didn't know what I was doing, I would never have been able to tell it all. Darkness doesn't describe it. I couldn't hear anything. It was dead silence. When you're in a soundproof room, you can still hear yourself breathing. You can hear yourself being alive. I couldn't. I began to stumble forward after a few moments, my rapidly beating heart, the only thing I could feel. There was no door in sight. Wasn't even sure there was one this time. The silence was then broken by a low hum. I felt something behind me. I spun around wildly but could barely even see my nose. I knew it was there, though. Regardless of how dark it was, I knew something was there. The hum grew louder, closer. It seemed to surround me, but I knew whatever was causing the noise was in front of me, inching closer. I took a step back. I had never felt that kind of fear. I can't really describe true fear. I wasn't even scared I was going to die. I was scared of what the alternative was. I was afraid of what the thing had in store for me. Then the lights flashed for a second and I saw it. Nothing. I saw nothing and I know I saw nothing there. The room was again plunged into darkness and the hum became a wild screech. I screamed in protest. I couldn't hear this GD sound for another minute. I ran backwards away from the noise and fumbled for the door handle. I turned and fell into room 5. Before I describe room 5, you have to understand something. I am not a drug addict, I have no history of drug abuse or any sort of psychosis, short of the childhood hallucinations I mentioned earlier, and those were only when I was really tired or just waking up. I entered the no end house with a clear head. After falling in from the previous room, the view of room 5 was from my back, looking up at the ceiling. What I saw didn't scare me, it simply surprised me. Trees had grown in the room and towered above my head. The ceilings in this room were taller than the others, which made me think I was in the center of the house. I got up off the floor, dusted myself off, and took a look around. It was definitely the biggest room of them all. I couldn't even see the door from where I was. Various brush and trees must have blocked my line of sight with the exit. Up to this point, I figured the rooms were going to get scarier, but this was a paradise compared to the last room. I also assumed whatever was in room four, stayed back there. I was incredibly wrong. As I made my way deeper into the room, I began to hear what one would hear if they were in a forest. Chirping bugs and the occasional flap of birds seemed to be my only company in this room. That was the thing that bothered me the most. I heard the bugs and the other animals, but I didn't see any of them. I began to wonder how big this house was from the outside when I first walked up to it. It looked like a regular house. It was definitely on the bigger side, but this was almost a full forest in here. The canopy covered my view of the ceiling, but I assumed it was still there, however high it was. I couldn't see any walls either. The only way I knew it was still inside was that the floor matched the other rooms, the standard dark wood paneling. I kept walking, hoping that the next tree I passed would reveal the door. After a few moments of walking, I felt a mosquito fly into my arm. I shrugged it off and kept going. Second later, I felt about 10 more land on my skin at different places. I felt them crawl up and down my arms and legs, and a few made their way across my face. I flailed wildly to get them all off, but they just kept crawling. I looked down and let out a muffled scream. More of a whimper, to be honest, but I didn't see a single bug. Not one bug was on me, but I could feel them crawl. I heard them fly by my face and sting my skin, but I couldn't see a single one. I dropped to the ground and began to roll wildly. I was desperate. I hated bugs, especially ones I couldn't see or touch, but these bugs could touch me and they were everywhere. I began to crawl. I had no idea where I was going. The entrance was nowhere in sight and I still hadn't even seen the exit. So I just crawled my skin wriggling with the presence of those phantom bugs. After what seemed like hours, I found the door I grabbed the nearest tree, propped myself up, mindlessly slapping my arms at legs to no avail. I tried to run, but couldn't. My body was exhausted from crawling and dealing with whatever it was that was on me. I took a few shaky steps to the door, grabbing each tree on the way for support. It was only a few feet away when I heard it. The low hum from before. It was coming from the next room, and it was deeper. I could almost feel it inside my body, like when you stand next to an amp at a concert. The feeling of the bugs on me lessened as the hum grew louder. As I placed my hand on the doorknob, the bugs were completely gone, but I couldn't bring myself to turn the knob. I knew that if I let go the bugs would return and there was no way I could make it back to room 4. I just stood there, my head pressed against the door marked 6 and my hands shakily grasping the knob. The hum was so loud I couldn't even hear myself pretend to think there was nothing I could do but move on. Room 6 was next and room 6 was hell. I closed the door behind me, my eyes held shut my ears ringing. The hum was surrounding me as the door clicked into place. The hum was gone. I opened my eyes in surprise and the door I shut was gone. It was just a wall now. I looked around and shock. The room was identical to room three, the same chair and lamp with the correct amount of shadows this time. The only real difference was that there was no exit door, and the one I came in through was gone. As I said before, I had no previous issues in terms of mental instability, but at that moment I fell into what I now know is insanity. I didn't scream. I didn't make a sound. At first I scratched off. The wall was tough, but I knew the door was there somewhere. I just knew it was. I scratched where the doorknob was. I crawled it. Crawl, clawed at the wall frantically with both hands, my nails being filed down to the skin against the wood. I fell silently to my knees, the only sound in the room, the incessant scratching against the wall. I knew it was there. The door was there. I knew it was just there. I knew if I could just get past this wall. Are you all right? I jumped off the ground and spun in one motion. I leaned against the wall behind me and saw what it was that spoke to me. To this day, I regret ever turning around. There was a little girl. She was wearing a soft white dress that went down to her ankles. She had long blonde hair to the middle of her back, white skin and blue eyes. She was the most frightening thing I had ever seen, and I know that nothing in my life will ever be as unnerving as what I saw in her. While looking at her, I saw something else. Where she stood, I saw what looked like a man's body, only larger than normal and covered in hair. He was naked from head to toe, but his head was not human and his toes were hooves. It wasn't the devil, but at that moment it might as well have been. The form had the head of a ram and the snout of a wolf. It was horrifying, and it was synonymous with the little girl in front of me. They were the same form. I can't really describe it, but I saw them at the same time. They shared the same spot in the room, but it was like looking at two separate dimensions. When I saw the girl, I saw the form, and when I saw the form, I saw the girl. I couldn't speak. I could barely even see. My mind was revolting against what it was attempting to process. I had been scared before in my life, and I had never been more scared than when I was trapped in the fourth room, but that was before room six. I just stood there, staring at whatever it was that spoke to me. There was no exit. I was trapped here with it. And then it spoke to, again, Judah, you should have listened. When it spoke, I heard the words of the little girl. But the other form spoke through my mind in a voice I won't attempt to describe. There was no other sound. The voice just kept repeating the sentence over and over in my mind, and I agreed. I didn't know what to do. I was slipping into madness. I couldn't take my eyes off of what was in front of me. I dropped to the floor. I thought I had passed out, but the room wouldn't let me in. I just wanted it to end. I was on my side, my eyes wide open and the form staring down at me. Scurrying across the floor in front of me was one of the battery powered rats from the second room. The house was toying with me. But for some reason seeing that rat pulled my mind back from whatever depths it was headed and I looked around the room. I was getting out of there. I was determined to get out of that house and live and never think about this place again. I knew this room was hell and I wasn't ready to take up a residency. At first it was just my eyes that moved. I searched the wall for any kind of opening. The room wasn't that big so it didn't take long to soak up the entire layout. The demon still taunted me, the voice growing louder as the form stayed rooted where it stood. I placed my hand on the floor, lifted myself up to all four, and turned to scan the wall behind me. Then I saw something I couldn't believe. The form was now right at my back, whispering into my mind how I shouldn't have come. I felt its breath on the back of my neck, but I refused to turn around. A large rectangle was scratched into the wood, with a small dent chipped away in the center of it. Right in front of my eyes, I saw the large seven I had mindlessly etched into the wall. I knew what it was. Room seven was just beyond the wall where room five was moments ago. I don't know how I'd done it. Maybe it was just my state of mind at the time, but I had created the door I knew I had. In my madness, I had scratched into the wall what I needed the most and exit to the next room. Room seven was close. I knew the demon was right behind me, but for some reason it couldn't touch me. I closed my eyes and placed both hands on the large seven in front of me. I pushed, I pushed as hard as I could. The demon was now screaming in my ear. It told me I was never leaving. It told me that this was the end, but I wasn't going to die. I was going to live there in room six with it. I wasn't. I pushed and screamed at the top of my lungs. I knew I was going to push through the wall eventually. I clenched my eyes shut and screamed and the demon was gone. I was left in silence. I turned around slowly and was greeted by the room as it was when I entered. Just a chair and a lamp. I couldn't believe it, but I didn't have time to well. I turned back to the seven and jumped back slightly. What I saw was a door. It wasn't the one I had scratched in, but a regular door with a large 7 on it. My whole body was shaking. It took me a while to turn the knob. I just stood there for a while, staring at the door. I couldn't stay in room 6. I couldn't, but if this was only room 6, I couldn't imagine what 7 had in store. I must have stood there for an hour, just staring at the 7. Finally, with a deep breath, I twisted the knob and opened the door to room 7. I stumbled through the door mentally exhausted and physically weak. The door behind me closed, and I realized where I was. I was outside. Not outside like room 5, but actually outside. My eyes stung. I wanted to cry. I fell to my knees and tried, but I couldn't. I was finally out of that hell. I didn't even care what about the prize that was promised. I turned and saw that the door I had just went through was the entrance. I walked into my car and drove home, thinking of how a nice shower sounded. I, just, I pulled up to my house. I felt uneasy. The joy of leaving no end house had faded, and dread was slowly building in my stomach. I shook it off as residual from the house made my way to the front door. I entered and immediately went up to my room. There on my bed was my cat, Baskerville. He was the first living thing I had seen all night and I reached to pet him. He hissed and swiped at my hand. I recoiled in shock as he had never acted like that. I thought, whatever, he's an old cat. I jumped in the shower and got ready for what I was expecting to be a sleepless night. After my shower, I went to the kitchen to make something to eat. I descended the stairs and turned into the family room. What I saw would be forever burned in my mind. However, my parents were lying on the ground, naked and covered in blood. They were mutilated to near unidentifiable states. Their limbs were removed and placed next to their bodies, and their heads were placed on their chests facing me. The most unsettling part was their expressions. They were smiling, as though they were happy to see me. I vomited and sobbed there in the family room. I didn't know what had happened. They didn't even live with me at the time. I was a mess, and I saw a door that was never there before, a door with a large eight, scrawled on it in blood. I was still in the house. I was standing in my family room, but I was in room 7. The faces of my parents smiled wider as I realized this. They weren't my parents. They couldn't be, but they looked exactly like them. The door marked 8 was across the room. Behind the mutilated bodies in front of me. I, I knew I had to move on, but at that moment I gave up. The smiling faces tore into my mind. They grounded me where I stood. I vomited again, nearly collapsed. Then the hum returned. It was louder than ever and it filled the house and shook the walls, the hum compelled me to walk. I began to walk slowly, making my way closer to the door and the bodies. I could barely stand, let alone walk, and the closer I got to my parents, the closer I came to suicide. The walls were now shaking so hard it seemed as though they were going to crumble, but still the faces smiled at me. As I inched closer, their eyes followed me. I was now between the two bodies, a few feet away from the door. The dismembered hands clawed their way across the carpet towards me, all while the faces continued to stare. New terror washed over me, and I walked faster. I didn't want to hear them speak. I didn't want the voices to match those of my parents. They began to open their mouths, and the hands were inches from my feet. In a dash of desperation, I lunged towards the door, threw it open, and slammed it behind me. Roommate. I was done. After what I had just experienced, I knew there wasn't anything else in this freaking house this frickin' house could throw at me that I couldn't live through. There was nothing short of the fires of hell that I wasn't ready for. Unfortunately, I underestimated the abilities of No End House. Unfortunately, things got more disturbing, more terrifying, and more unspeakable in roommate, I was still having trouble believing what I saw in roommate. Again, the room was a carbon copy of Rooms 3 and 6, but sitting in the usually empty chair was a man. After a few seconds of disbelief, my mind finally accepted the fact that the man sitting in the chair was me, not someone who looked like me, it was Judah Middle. I walked closer. I had to get a better look even though I was sure of it. He looked up at me and I noticed tears in his eyes. Please. Please don't do it. Please don't hurt me. What? I asked. Who are you? I'm not going to hurt you. Yes, you are. He was sobbing now. You're going to hurt me and I don't want you to. He sat in the chair with his legs up and began rocking back and forth. It was actually pretty pathetic looking, especially since he was me, identical in every way. Listen, who are you? I was now only a few feet from my doppelganger. It was the weirdest experience yet, standing there talking to myself. I wasn't scared, but I would be soon. Why are you? You're going to hurt me. You're going to hurt me. If you want to leave, you're going to hurt me. Why are you saying that? Just calm down, all right? Let's try and figure this. And then I saw it. The David sitting down was wearing the same clothes as me, except for a small red patch on his shirt, embroidered with the number nine. You're going to hurt me. You're going to hurt me. Please don't. You're going to hurt me. My eyes didn't leave that small number on his chest. I knew exactly what it was. The first few doors were plain and simple. But after a while, they got a little more ambiguous. Seven was scratched into the wall, but by my own hands. Eight was marked in blood above the bodies of my parents. But nine? This number was on a person. A living person. Worse still, it was on a person that looked exactly like me. Judah? I had to ask. Yes, you're going to hurt me. You're going to hurt me. He continued to sob and rock. He answered to Judah. He was me right down to the voice, but that nine, I paced around for a few minutes while he sobbed in his chair. The room had no door, and similarly to room six, the door I came through was gone. For some reason, I assumed that scratching would get me nowhere this time. I studied to the walls and floor around the chair, sticking my head underneath and seeing if anything was below. Unfortunately, there was. Below the chair was a knife. Attached was a tag that read, to Judah, from management. The feeling in my stomach as I read that tag was something sinister. I wanted to throw up and the last thing I wanted to do was remove that knife from under the chair. The other Judah was still sobbing uncontrollably. My mind was spinning into an attic of unanswerable questions. Who put this here and how did they get my name? Not to mention the fact that as I knelt on the cold wood floor, I also sat in the chair, sobbing in protest of being hurt by myself. It was all too much to process. The house and the management had been playing with me this whole time. My thoughts for some reason turned to Peter whether or not he got this far. If he did, if he met a Peter Terry sobbing in this very chair, rocking back and forth. I shook those thoughts out of my head. They didn't matter. I took the knife from under the chair and immediately the other Judah went quiet. Judah, he said in my voice, what do you think you're going to do? I lifted myself from the ground and clenched the knife in my hand. I'm going to get out of here. David was still sitting in the chair Though he was very calm now, he looked up at me with a slight grin. I couldn't tell if he was going to laugh or strangle me. Slowly, he got up from the chair and stood facing me. It was uncanny. His height and even the way he stood matched mine. I felt the rubber hilt of the handle of my knife and gripped it tighter. I don't know what I was planning on doing with it, but I had a feeling I was going to need it. Now, his voice was slightly deeper than my own. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to hurt you, and I'm going to keep you here. I didn't respond. I just lunged and tackled him to the ground. I mounted him and looked down, knife poised and ready. He looked up at me, terrified. It was like I was looking in a mirror. Then the hum returned, low and distant, though I still felt it deep in my body. Judah looked up at me as I looked down at myself. The hum was getting louder, and I felt something inside me snap. With one motion, I slammed the knife into the patch on his chest and ripped down. Blackness fell in the room, and I was falling. The darkness around me was like nothing I experienced up until that point. Room four was dark, but it didn't come close to what was completely engulfing me. I wasn't even sure if I was falling after a while. I felt weightless, covered in dark. Then a deep sadness came over me. I felt lost, depressed, suicidal. The sight of my parents entered my mind. I knew it wasn't real, but I had seen it, and the mind had trouble differentiating between what is real and what isn't. The sadness only deepened. I was in room nine for what seemed like days. The final room, and that's exactly what it was. The end. No end house had an end, and I had reached it. At that moment, I gave up. I knew I would be in that in-between state forever. Accompanied by nothing but darkness, not even the hum was there to keep me sane. I'd lost all senses. I couldn't feel myself, I couldn't hear anything. Sight was completely useless here. I searched for a taste in my mouth and found nothing. I felt disembodied and completely lost. I knew where I was, this was hell. Room nine was hell and it happened. A light, one of those stereotypical lights at the end of the tunnel. I felt ground come up from below and I was standing. After a moment or two of gathering my thoughts and senses, I slowly walked toward that light. As I approached the light, it took form. It was a vertical slit down the side of an unmarked door. I slowly walked through the door and found myself back where I started. The lobby of No End House. It was exactly how I left it, still empty, still decorated with childish Halloween decorations. After everything that had happened that night, I was still wary of where I was. After a few moments of normalcy, I looked around the place, trying to find anything different. On the desk was a plain white envelope with a name. Handwritten on it. Immensely curious, yet still cautious, I mustered up the courage to open it. the envelope. Inside the letter. Inside was a letter. Again, handwritten. Judah Middle. Congratulations. You have made it to the end of Noah out- End House. Please accept this prize as a token of great achievement. Yours forever, Management. With the letter were five $100 bills. I couldn't stop laughing. I laughed for what seemed like hours. I laughed as I walked out to my car and laughed as I drove home. I laughed as I pulled into my driveway. I laughed as I opened my front door to my house and laughed as I saw the small 10 inched into the wood. That's it? That was no end house. Wow. Were you spooked,
1: Ben? That That actually was really good. It's pretty interesting. That was, that was pretty spooky. Pretty spooky. 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 I think you can top it. I don't know. I got one called A Package Marked Return to Sender. I wanted to read it while you were reading it, but I was so into y- you reading that I just couldn't. So into No End House. Yeah, No End House had gripped me. So as far as I know, this might not be very good, but I think I think it will be. Who posts bad creepy passes? A lot of people actually. Yeah, a lot. Okay. Alright. No End House was great. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Were you guys spooked? Picture it around a campfire. But now enter back into your um scary
0: state. Yeah, we're all spooked again. I don't want to I have the other stories up but I don't want to look at them while you read so I'm googling a picture of a
1: jack-o-lantern. Ooh, Ooh suspense noise. Ooh. <laughs> one more time and we're going to go right into the thing. A package marked return to sender. My neighbor is one of those annoying wannabe YouTube personalities. Over the year I've seen him cough out cinnamon lay flat on the hood of his car as it slowly creeps down the driveway and doused himself in lukewarm water, all the while screaming, epic whim, epic fail, or, frick, epic maintenance of the status quo, for all I know, it can get tiring to watch him go about his shenanigans in the pursuit of viral fame. So when he knocked on the door the other day, told me he was going away for a few weeks, and asked that I get his mail, honestly, it was a relief. I can't explain the peace of mind I had knowing I didn't have to brace myself for any of his sus- stupidity for a while. I was always afraid his stunts would wind up bleeding over into my life. Things were pretty normal for the first couple of days. He received a few bills, a bit of spam, what I can only assume was a birthday card. Then one evening, I got home to find a cardboard box waiting on his front porch. In big red letters was written, RETURN TO SENDER. I'm no small fry, but I admit I had trouble lifting the box on my own. It was really freaking heavy. Lugging it across the road to my house was even harder, and I quickly realized there was no way I was going to drag it up the stairs and through my front door. I decided I'd leave his package in my garage. It wasn't like I kept my car in there. The garage door was a piece of poop that refused to open without a good thug and a whack. It was less trouble just leaving the car in the driveway than it was to fight with the garage door every morning and night. In hindsight, I should have set the package down while I struggled to open the tricky door, but you know how it is when you've got a good grip on something. No point in setting it down if you don't have to. It was as I kicked the door for a third time that I lost my grip on the package and it fell to the ground. I heard a light crack inside. Poop, I cursed. I hope I hadn't broken anything important, but figured I would, wouldn't would tell my neighbor about it and let him assume that break happened en route. Hands-free, I finally managed to get the garage door unstuck, and boy, did it screech in protest as it rolled up and over me. I dragged the box the rest of the way, setting it in the corner for whenever my neighbor would come back to claim it. And then I forgot all about it until a few days passed, that is. I'm not sure exactly how long it took for the smell to waft in from the crack under the garage to house door, but it came in slow progression. It was a sickly sweet odor similar to a skunk, and for the first few days after I smelled it I genuinely assumed that's exactly what it was, roadkill, that had left its mark on my house. It was only when I realized the scent was growing more intense instead of fading that I went looking for a source. That's when I opened the garage door, and that's when the odor knocked me back, holding my nose. The culprit wasn't hard to identify, the only change in my garage was the box in the corner. I remember thinking it must have been one of those meat of the month subscription boxes. The meat must have gone rancid from being left out of the fridge for so long. How much meat could have been in there for the box to have been so large and heavy? An entire frickin' cow? I covered my nose as I approached the box. A pair of scissors in my hands. I probably wouldn't have needed them to open it, as it had become soggy enough at the bottom to poke through with a finger. But I wasn't about to poke my finger into spoiled meat juices. That soggy bottom was the reason I had to open the box in the first place. If I tried to drag it out whole, everything would spill out on the floor. I was going to have to dump the pieces of meat one garbage bag at a time and take them down to the dumpster, a process I wasn't looking forward to. My scissors tore through the table along the top of the cardboard box. I thought the smell couldn't get any worse, but as I flipped the flaps open, I discovered a whole new gamut of stink. It was like opening a burning oven, but instead of a heat wave, I was met with a wave of piss, sweat, poop. putrefaction. It was so bad that I staggered back and had to force down the puke begging to guzzle out of me. I don't think I could have handled the scent mingling with the horrors coming out of the box. I'm not ashamed to admit I ran out the door for a breath of fresh air, but in the short time I'd spent in the garage the smell had become so ingrained in the fabric of my clothes that it clung to me like a shadow. Nothing I tried could keep the smell out of my nostrils. Not air fresheners, not a face mask, not three showers and a change of clothes. Every second that box lay open in my garage was another second and the smell was a f- foothold into my home. I had to bite the bullet. I returned to the garage, the flaps of the box still open as though inviting me to look. I was prepared, a clothespin, pinning my nostrils shut, a garbage bag in one hand, the strongest cleaner I could find in the other, and long rubber gloves to keep my skin from having to touch what was inside. But, as it turns out, I needed none of those things. I wouldn't have to touch or clean the contents of that box. I I would only have to suffer the nightmares every night. You see, there was meat in that box, but it didn't come from a cow or a pig. No, it was worse than that. It was my neighbor. Dead. Still in one piece, but dead. I called the cops, and naturally, they took me in for interrogation. It's kind of hard not to suspect the man with a corpse in his garage. After all, thankfully, they soon realized I wasn't involved. My DNA might have been all over that box, this mail might have left a mark throughout my house, but there was one piece of irrefutable evidence in my neighbor's own hands that proved my innocence. A vlogging camera. They showed me the footage only once. I'm not sure if they were allowed to, or if they felt so bad for me they figured it couldn't hurt. Either way, I saw it. My neighbor was sitting in the box outside of a shipping facility, laughing as he told the world how he was going to mail himself across state lines. He'd brought pee bottles, food, a pillow, and a few flashlights. His friend. A guy had seen at several places several times to help with stunts, closed the lid, and presumably dropped him off for shipment. Throughout the next couple of hours, or days, I'm honestly not sure, my neighbor recorded a few short clips about his progress, I think I'm in a truck now, I can feel it moving, must be in a warehouse, pretty warm here, still got plenty of food, that kind of stuff. And then, on the last entry, the box toppled over. He broke his neck, and that was it. The camera retorted until either the memory card got too full, or the battery died. There's one thing I didn't tell the police after they showed me the video. One thing I heard in the footage that will haunt me to the day I die. Just after that tumble that broke his neck, I heard the familiar screeching sound of my garage door. He was the one who killed him. He
0: killed him. He did it. Wow. Wow. Spooky! terrifying you guys flip spooked? sun done
1: that was that was that was pretty good all right let's see if I can find something else
0: all right I got one you got
1: one eh yeah I'm loaded up okay you' ready this is gonna get you into it yeah.
0: This one is called, it's a short one. It's called, I had a disturbing conversation with my seven-year-old daughter. Okay, here we go. i do the voices. Dad, Dad, I saw a zombie. I was in the kitchen making tea when my little girl came rushing in. She ran through the back door so fast she almost tripped up the step. I poured boiling water from the kettle into a mug, hardly looking out. Oh yeah? Yeah, I did. Its face was all pale and messed up. It was gross, Dad. I put the kettle back and picked up the milk, sighed inwardly. I really had to be more careful about what I watched on TV in the evening. Rosie has a bad habit of sneaking downstairs in the night, and last week she caught me watching The Walking Dead. Of all things, she's had zombies on the brain ever since. I keep telling her they're not real, but it doesn't seem to make a difference. Sweetheart. What did we say about zombies? I scooped the tea bag out of the mug and dumped it in the bin. You know, if you keep talking about them, Daddy's going to get in trouble with Mummy again. Yeah, but I saw one! I know, darling, but I already checked the back garden twice yesterday, and I can promise. It's a zombie-free zone. No, not in the back garden. Hmm? I didn't see it in the back garden. I had the mug half raised to my lips, but now I put it down again. I turned to look at Rosie. Her hair was wind-swept, and her little cheeks were red, as if she'd been running. Sweetheart? I put out my best stern, dad's not happy voice. I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to be honest with me. Have you been playing along the path out back again? I didn't really need to ask the question because I already knew the answer. Rosie is allowed to play in the garden on her own, and sometimes, if she asks us permission first, we let her ride her bike along the path at the back of our house, the one that runs past all the neighbor's back gardens. but that's all we allow her to do. This area is pretty safe, but these days you can never be too careful. There was a burglary a couple of roads over a few months back and last year someone was mugged on the high street. Several years ago, a few towns over a little boy even went missing. That was quite a long way from here of course, but it made national news for a few days until the search fizzled out and made a lot of parents more cautious. Rosie's getting older now and she's an adventurous girl, but still, you have to have boundaries. And on a few occasions lately, Rosie's been crossing those boundaries, riding her bike further than she should, not coming in straight when we tell her, sneaking out the back gate when she's only meant to be playing in the garden. As I watched Rosie now, I noticed her face growing redder. She looked away from me, down at the kitchen floor, and scuffed her feet. Dad, I only went a little way down, she said. I PROMISE! I was chatting to Mr. Henderson because I saw him in his back garden. I said hello made him jump. I sighed. So there it was. Mr. Henderson was Rosie's zombie. Yesterday it was the postman, and the day before that it was a different neighbor. I took a sip of tea and shook my head. Mr. Henderson was, in fairness, a better candidate than the others. The guy lives on his own, he looks about a hundred years old. Moles all over his face, skin like a deflated balloon. Whenever we chatted over the garden fence before, though, he'd always seemed nice enough, just a bit lonely. They couldn't have Rosie going around calling him a zombie. "'Listen to me, sweetheart. I know you didn't go far or anything, but I don't want you—' "'I came right back after, too, Dad!' Rosie interrupted. She was staring up at me now, blue eyes large and pleading, "'I promise, and I even said no when Mr. Henderson offered me an ice cream "'because I know you don't like me taking stuff from strangers.' I opened my mouth and then paused. "'He offered you ice cream?' "'Yeah, but I said no. Mr. Henderson really wanted me to come in and have one, "'but I told him I had to get home, and then I came extra to here to tell you I'd seen a zombie, and I—' Rosie was babbling now, her voice whirring like a motor, but I'd stopped listening. My mind was still stuck on something she said a moment before.' Mr. Henderson really wanted me to come in and have one. I took another sip of tea and frowned. That wasn't good. I don't mind the neighbors chatting to my little girl, but I don't like the thought of them inviting her in. Not without us there. Not even if they were just kind, lonely old men. I made up my mind to go round and visit Mr. Henderson later and tell him that myself. Kindly, of course, but firmly. In the end, though, I didn't get a chance because a few moments after I'd had my thought, Rosie said something else. Something that pushed everything else from my mind and ended any idea I might have had about going over to Mr. Henderson's house. She said something that made me feel cold. Daddy, please don't stop me playing in the garden. I promise I won't sneak out again. I don't want the zombie to get me. Rosie, I'm not going to stop you playing in the garden, but you have to make me a couple of promises, too. First, promise me you'll stop going around calling people zombies. Mr. Henderson may be old, but he's not one of the living dead. Rosie frowned. I didn't. What do you mean you didn't? You just ran in here a moment, calling him. A moment ago, calling him one. No, I didn't. Mr. Henderson's not a zombie. I saw the zombie in his house, but it wasn't him. I frowned. I had a mug raised to my lips to take another sip of tea, but now I put it down again. What do you mean, sweetheart? You saw someone else in his house? Yeah, the zombie, Dad. I could see its face pressed against his little basement window while I was talking to him. Cold fingers ran up my spine. What? Yeah, it was really scary. His face was all bashed up and bloody and its mouth was open like it was screaming at me. But you know what confused me most, Dad? I tried to keep my voice steady. What? What? Well, I didn't realize kids could be zombies, too. I thought it was only grown-ups. But I guess I must have been wrong, because the one in Mr. Henderson's basement looked just like a little boy. Ooh. pa 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 pa,
1: Spooky.
0: All right. Hope you guys
1: are enjoying this so far.
0: Guys, do you get it? Because Mr. Henderson was the creepo who took the kids. Whoa. He's probably the one who took that little boy. Hmm. Interesting. Well,
1: that was good. I liked it.
0: Here's a quick one. Nice little quick one. About a creepy mm-hmm. old man. Hmm.
1: That's freaky sounds. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, I have another one. That isn't incredibly long. So I'll give it a read. And then after we can, if we, if we want to, read The Russian Sleep Experiment, which I'm Ooh. sure most of you... No, already but I'm gonna start I'm gonna this one is interesting it's called the previous tenant of my new flat left a survival guide I'm not sure I want to live here anymore so in this he recounts the survival guide that his previous tenant left for him so we're gonna we're gonna give it uh give it a go it's t- it talks about moving in with her um, it's, it's a girl moving in with her boyfriend but I'm going to change it
0: that's the scariest thing I've ever heard
1: me moving in with my boyfriend
0: well just I mean
1: oh just moving in with someone who's oh, ah.
0: who's not Well, uh, your lawfully wedded spouse mm, mm. that's the true right. fear
1: I'm not uh, going to change it because I don't feel like
0: talk about changing. moving in with your, your
1: boyfriend I will I moved in with my boyfriend yesterday We've been for five. <laughs> Sorry. We've been together for five years now, and we're old and wise enough to settle down and finally leave our parents' houses. Why don't you just get married then you freak? He turned twenty four and I'm twenty two. He's the love of my life. His name is Jamie, and I couldn't be happier to be living with him. When we decided to make the leap, we spent two months looking at flats and houses. We couldn't afford to buy yet, so we renting was our only option. But the prices were astronomical. For our budget we would have been lucky to get a box room and a stove. Jamie works for a local 24-hour fast food restaurant, and I'm trained to be a teacher. The early stages of training don't pay much, and I owe a lot in student loans, so finances are tough. We had almost given up hope until we found our flat. It was nothing special, but to us it was a palace. A spacious two-bedroom apartment with views of a city park, a balcony, and local conveniences. It was in a tower block in a not-so-nice area, but neither of us had been wealthy growing up. We weren't fussy, just grateful to be together. The advert was sweetened by the deposit-free option and open-ended tenancy. The landlord was happy to sign a five-year contract if we wanted, the sort of thing never happens in the city. We were told that along with no deposit, we would also have no inspections, but would be liable to pay for any damage that we ended the tenancy. I'd never heard of anything quite like it. We knew that for our budget location we weren't going to get any better, we snapped the place up fast, not even bothering to view it, it felt like our only chance. Moving day rolled around quickly, and yesterday we got the keys to our first home together. It was such a strange feeling. The day was chaos, getting our stuff in and up the lift. We were flat number 42 on the 7th floor. The items we couldn't get in the lift had to be taken up the stairs by the removal men. I think they were grateful we weren't any higher, but I still wish we had been able to give them a better tip. In the evening, we settled down on our second-hand sofa given to us by a cousin of a friend and watched some TV. We smoked cigarettes on the balcony looking at the park and fell asleep on the mattress on the floor super early because we had no energy to put the bed together yet, and Jamie had work at a hideous time in the morning. We slept soundly that night. I felt safe and happy. I don't think the feeling is coming back anytime soon, and it's all due to the note I found this morning. I found it in the kitchen, having a coffee, hours after Jamie had left for his early shift at work. It was one of the cupboards that it was in one of the cupboards that were fixed to the wall. There was a bunch of useful items in, from the previous tenant: spare keys to the flat, a set of tiny keys that locked and unlocked the windows necessary necessary for those with kids that high up, spare smoke alarm batteries, and a folded-up piece of paper. The note was handwritten with "new occupier of flat 42" in beautiful cursive on the blank side. I opened it up and sat down to read. I can't really describe it to you, so I'm going to copy it out below. Dear New Occupier, Firstly, welcome to your new home. I lived here before you for 35 years with my husband. Unfortunately, he had an incident in the home recently that I'd rather not discuss. That claimed his life. My sister has now decided I can't keep up with the demands of the property and has insisted that I move in with her and her husband. I was reluctant at first, but the stairs do kill me at my age, and without Bernie, it's filled with sadness. Anyway, when you've lived somewhere for as long as I have, it feels like a person that you know. You understand its personality and what makes it tick. I thought it was probably pertinent that I empower, impart some of that knowledge on you. It's a wonderful home, honestly. I've lived through best and worst years, and, and leaving it behind is very emotional. But if you are to survive and get the best out of it, then there are some steps you need to follow. 1. The landlord will never bother you. He doesn't visit. Call or communicate in any way. But make sure to pay your rent in a timely fashion, always. I only have dealt with him once in 35 years, and let's just say I never miss another rent day. Any repairs required. You speak to the agent you rented the place with. Two, do not use the communal lift between 1.11 and 3.33 a.m. Just don't do it. This step is vital if you are to have a happy life here. It really is life or death. Don't do it. This has cost me and many other in the buildings greatly. And I'd rather not elaborate on why you shouldn't do this. Just please don't do it. I cannot stress this enough. Three, when you hear the strange animal noise coming from flat 48, don't question it. Mr. Prentice lives there and he's a lovely chap. Don't be afraid to say hello to him in the corridor or on the stairs. He's old school so he never risks the lift. But whatever you do, don't check on him when you hear the noises. You'll know when you hear them. Four, if you ever come across a window cleaner on the balcony, ignore him. He may seem like the nicest fellow you've ever had, trying to sell something to you at the door, but it really is best that you don't engage. He will go away if you ignore him, but he tries pretty hard the first few times, so you'll need some resilience. Whatever you do, don't offer him anything. No money, no hot drink. Don't leave food scraps out, bin, or refrigerate them immediately. If you have small animals, it is imperative that you watch them eat and take away any leftover food immediately after they are done. This and rule two go hand in hand. The things forage all day and seem to really love animal feed. You don't want them in your flat, I promise. You can leave what you want between 1.11 and 3.30 a.m. So you may want to feed your pets then. Don't communicate with any neighbors who claim to come from Flats 65 to 72. These flats suffered a fire in the late 80s that devastated the whole floor. All the residents died in their homes. The building was mostly council owned at the time and they never bothered to renovate the flats. They've been empty ever since. But now and again someone will knock at your door claiming to live in one of these flats and ask to borrow some sugar. They will seem entirely average but you must shut and lock the door immediately. I installed two extra security bolts to avoid these frickers. I don't swear at at my age but they really are frickers. (laughs) Simple one for you here. Keep a weapon in each room. Sometimes you follow all these steps and sometimes it still slips through the net. Sometimes you'll follow all these steps and sometimes they'll still slip through the net. Better to be safe than sorry. Eight, the building has a committee that will try and get you to join. It's one of those neighborhood groups about improving living conditions for all residents. It's a nice group and the lady who runs it, Terry from flat 26, is a fantastic neighbor. By all means, get involved. But I wouldn't recommend babysitting Terry's two children. She'll ask you, because the poor woman needs a break. But if you accept, don't say I didn't warn you. 9. Stray, hairless cats sometimes roam in the hallway. I know they're supposedly a special, expensive breed, but they don't belong to anyone. They're mostly harmless, but don't pick them up. Not unless you see one of those neighbors that claims to live in 6572. Then grab the cat and lock it inside with you. It'll burn your skin a little, but the cats are friendly, and I wouldn't want to see them hurt. 10. There is no way to fix the damp patch on the ceiling in the bedroom. Sometimes it will turn a deep crimson and look quite concerning. But please try not to be alarmed. It doesn't drip, it doesn't get any bigger, and it's been there longer than I have. The landlord won't budge on it, according to the agents. I flagged it many times, even called the police the first night it changed color. But it was a waste of time, and it will be for you, too. It's best to ignore it. 11. You can trust the postman. His name is Ian Flanders, and he's been the postman since I moved in. He has his own key to the main door and delivers posts to the door every morning at 8.54. I can't include everything here, or it, would help become, or it would become a novel, but if you have any questions, Ian will help you. 12. Finally. The first few weeks are the worst. you feel like you've made a mistake. I'm sure reading this you already do, but if you, if you can get through the first few weeks, it really is a lovely block to live in. Every property has its quirks, and this one is a little extra special, but you can be truly happy here if you just take my advice. I wish you all the best. I really do. Yours truly. Miss Prudence Hemmings. I don't really know what to think after reading the note. Hopefully it was some sort of joke. But the agent had said the previous tenant was an elderly lady, and I can't see anyone named Prudence Hemmings attempting to play practical jokes with someone they'd never met. There were also parts of the note I couldn't disprove. There was indeed a large damp patch above the bed that me and Jamie had already discussed reporting. No crimson, but it definitely existed. I also I had also commented on a beautiful Sphinx cat room in the halls as we were moving in. I started to get seriously freaked out. Our dream. Our beautiful little home which become a source of fear and confusion. I checked on the time and it was 9.14, Damn it! out of time to catch postman Ian. When I opened the door to check, sure enough, two letters addressed to Mrs. Hemmings sat on the doorstep. At about 11.15, my worst fears were truly confirmed when a friendly middle-aged looking man carrying window cleaning equipment knocked on my balcony door. I ignored him. I didn't want to take the risk until I would spoken to Jamie and showed him the note. I texted him already to rush home. I felt bad as the man wrapped his knuckles against the door for over 10 minutes. But honestly, the longer it went on, the more I was terrified. The windows were sparking, and due to our lack of curtains, I couldn't even hide from this, his gaze. I felt so exposed. He stayed for a total of 30 minutes exactly, and never once did he stop looking at me or knocking. He shouted the occasional ultra liner, line or Helmo request for a beverage in the heat, though the door, but I did my best to avoid eye contact. When he finally left, I looked outside every window in the flat, but I couldn't see him on any of the other balconies or see any equipment suggesting he was around. He had vanished completely. Jamie still hadn't texted me back. He must have been having a rough shift. It was Friday and they were always busy. It wasn't often that he didn't reply. He was due home in around an hour anyways. I read the note probably hundreds of times over. I tortured myself reading it for the next hour, desperately waiting for Jamie to come through the door and tell me it was all crazy and I should relax. I hoped for that so much. But Jamie never came. His shift should have finished around midday but by 2pm he still wasn't home. I panicked, I cried, I left over a hundred voice messages on his phone but got nowhere. I finally decided it had been enough that calling his work wouldn't embarrass him, and his boss told me that he had never turned up for his shift. I thought about it, what could have happened? And then it hit me. Jamie's shift started at 4am today. He would have left the flat at 3.15 and taken the lift down the stairs. I don't know what to do. I've tried to convince myself it was all just a big joke. Maybe Jamie wrote the note and got his boss in on it. The voice in my head kept telling me that he couldn't write like that if he tried, but I had to attempt to fool myself. It's getting late and he still isn't home. What if it's all true? I think we made a big mistake. pretty more there's more called my next steps and what happened after that
0: well if you guys are interested give us money on patreon and maybe we'll read the next steps all right i got a real quick one and then we'll close off with the russian sleep experiment
1: sounds good
0: all right this one is is also a creepypasta you can find out creepypasta.fandom.com okay it's called gateway of the mind Mm. Oh, I thought you were going to play a special effect there.
1: Oh, oh, oh.
0: Um, what special effect would you like? I don't know, give Say me something it. spooky. It's called Say it again. It's called Gateway of the Mind. Pretty eerie. Ooh, creepy. All right. In 1983, a team of deeply pious scientists conducted a radical experiment in an undisclosed facility. The scientists had theorized that a human without access to any senses or ways to perceive stimuli would be able to perceive the presence of God. They believed that the five senses clouded our awareness of eternity, and without them, a human could actually establish contact with God by thought. An elderly man who claimed to have nothing left to live for was the only test subject to volunteer. To purge him of all his senses, the scientists performed a complex operation in which every sensory nerve connection to the brain was surgically severed. Although the test subject retained full muscular function, he could not see, hear, taste, smell, or feel. With no possible way to communicate with or even sense the outside world, he was alone with his thoughts. Scientists monitored him monitored him as he spoke aloud about his state of mind and jumbled, slurred sentences that he couldn't even hear. After four days, the man claimed to be hearing hushed, unintelligible voices in his head. Assuming it was an onset of psychosis, the scientists paid little attention to the man's concerns. Two days later, the man cried that he could hear his dead wife speaking with him, and even more, he could communicate back. The scientists were intrigued, but were not convinced until the subject started naming dead relatives of the scientists. He repeated personal information to the scientists that only their dead spouses and parents would have known. At this point, a sizable portion of scientists left the study. After a week of conversing with the deceased through his thoughts, the subject became distressed, saying the voices were overwhelming. In every waking moment, his consciousness was bombarded by hundreds of voices that refused to leave him alone. He frequently threw himself against a wall, trying to elicit a pain response. He begged the scientists for sedatives so he could escape the voices by sleeping. This tactic worked for three days, until he started having severe night terrors. The subject repeatedly said that he could see and hear the deceased in his dreams. Only a day later, the subject began to scream and at his non-functional eyes, hoping to sense something in the physical world. The hysterical subject now said the voices of the dead were deafening and hostile, speaking of hell and the end of the world. At one point he yelled, no heaven, no forgiveness, for five hours straight. He continually begged to be killed, but the scientists were convinced that he was close to establishing contact with God. After another day, the subject could no longer form coherent sentences. Seemingly mad, he started to bite off chunks of flesh from his arm. The scientist rushed into the test chamber and restrained him to a table so he could not kill himself. After a few hours of being tied down, the subject halted, his struggling and screaming. He stared blankly at the ceiling as tear drops silently streaked across his face. For two weeks, the subject had to be manually rehydrated due to the constant crying. Eventually, he turned his head and despite his blindness, made focus eye contact with a scientist for the first time in the study. He whispered, "I have spoken with God, and He has abandoned us." And his vital signs stopped. There was no apparent cause of death.
1: Hmm. I have spoken with God, and He has abandoned us. Interesting.
0: Spooky. 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 All right, Ben. You ready to close us out with a a banger? And
1: sleep experiment. It's a it's a long one, but yes,
0: I'm excited. Guys, buckle your frickin' seatbelts. Buckle,
1: buckle up, buckaroos. We're about to get going with one that you should already know.
0: But if you don't know it, get ready, because it S- still isn't spooky. Because it's fun.
1: It's in the story of the Russian sleep experiment. Russian researchers in the late 1940s kept five people awake for 15 days using an experimental gas-based stimulant. They were kept in a sealed environment to carefully monitor their oxygen intake, so the gas didn't kill them. Since it was toxic in high concentrations, this was before closed-circuit cameras so they had only microphones and 5-inch thick glass porthole-sized windows into the chamber to monitor them. The chamber was stocked with books, costs to sleep on but no bedding, running water and toilet, and enough dried food to last all five for over a month. The test subjects were political prisoners deemed enemies of the state during World War II. Everything was fine for the first five days. The subjects hardly complained about having been promised falsely that they would be freed if they submitted to the test and did not sleep for 30 days. Their conversations and activities were monitored and it was noted that they continued to talk about increasingly traumatic incidents in their past, and the general tone of their conversations took on a darker aspect after the four-day mark. After five days, they started to complain about the circumstances and events that led them to where they were and started to demonstrate severe paranoia. They stopped talking to each other and began alternately whispering to the microphones and one-way mirrored portholes. Oddly, they all seemed to think that they could win the trust of the experimenters by turning over their comrades, the other subjects in captivity with them. At first, the researchers suspected this was an effect of the gas itself. After nine days, the first of them started screaming. He ran the length of the chamber, repeatedly yelling at the top of his lungs for three hours straight. He continued attempting to scream, but was only able to produce occasional squeaks. The researcher. The researchers posulated that he had physically torn his vocal cords. The most surprising thing about this behavior is how the other captives reacted to it, or rather, did react to it. They continued whispering to the microphones until the second of the captives started to scream. The two non-screaming captives took the books apart, smeared page after page with their own feces, and pasted them calmly over the glass portholes. The screaming promptly stopped. So did the whispering to the microphones. After three more days passed, the researchers checked the microphones hourly to make sure they were working, since they thought it was impossible that no sound could be coming with five people inside. The oxygen consumption in the chamber indicated that all five must still be alive. In fact, it was the amount of oxygen five people will consume at a very high, heavy level of strenuous exercise. On the morning of the 14th day, the researchers did something they said they would not do to get a reaction from the captives. They used the intercom inside the chamber, hoping to provoke any response from the captives. They were, afraid to, they were afraid they were either dead or vegetables. They announced we are opening the chamber to test the microphones, step away from the door, and lie flat on the floor or you will be shot. Compliance will earn one of you your immediate freedom. To their surprise, they heard a single phrase in a calm voice response. We no longer want to be freed. Debate broke out among the researchers in the military forces funding the research. Unable to provoke any response and using the intercom, it was finally decided to open the chamber at midnight on the 15th day. Chamber was flushed of the stimulant gas and filled with fresh air, and immediately voices from the microphones began to object. Three different voices began begging, as if pleading for the life of loved ones to turn the gas back on. Chamber was opened, and soldiers sent in to retrieve the test subjects. They began to scream louder than ever, and so did the shoulders when they, soldiers when they saw what was inside. Four of the five subjects were still alive, although no one could rightly call the state that any of, that any of them were in life. The food rations passed day five had not been so much touched. There were chunks of meat from the dead test subjects' thighs and chest stuffed into the drain in the center of the chamber, blocking the drain and allowing 4 inches of water to accumulate on the floor. Precisely how much of the water on the floor was actually blood was never determined. All four surviving test subjects also had large portions of muscle and skin torn away from their bodies. The destruction of flesh and exposed bone on their fingertips indicated that the wounds were inflicted by hand, not with teeth, as the researchers initially thought closer examination of the position and angles of the wounds indicated that most if most if not all of them were self-inflicted the abdominal organs below the rib cage of all four test subjects had been removed while the heart lungs and diaphragm remained in, remained in place the skin and most of the muscles attached to the ribs had been ripped off exposing the lungs through the rib cage all the blood vessels and organs remained intact they had just been taken out and laid on the floor fanning out around the eviscerated but still living bodies of the subjects the digestive tract of all four of them could be seen to be working, digesting food. It quickly became apparent that what they were digesting was their own flesh that they had ripped off and eaten over the course of days. Most of the soldiers were Russian special operators of the facility, but still many refused to return to the chamber to remove the test subjects. They continued to scream to be left in the chamber and alternately begged in demanded manner that the gas be turned back on, lest they fall asleep. To everyone's surprise, the test subjects put up a fierce fight in the process of being removed from the chamber. One of the Russian soldiers died from having his throat ripped out, another was gravely injured by having his testicles ripped off, and an artery in his leg severed by one of the subjects teeth. Another five of the soldiers lost their lives, if you count ones that committed suicide in the weeks following the incident. In the struggle, one of the four living subjects had his spleen ruptured and he bled out almost immediately. The medical researchers attempted to sedate him, but this proved impossible. He was injected with more than ten times the human dose of morphine derivative, and still fought like a cornered animal, breaking the ribs and arms of one doctor. When heart was, was seen to beat for a full two minutes after he had bled out to the point where there was more air in his vascular system than blood. Even after it stopped, he continued to scream and flail for another three minutes, struggling to attack anyone in reach, and just repeating the word MORE over and over, weaker and weaker, until he finally fell silent. The surviving three test subjects were heavily restra- heavily restrained and moved to a medical facility. The two with an intact vocal cords, continuously begging for the cast, demanded to be kept awake. The most injured of the three was taken to the only surgical operating room the facility had. In the process of preparing the subject to have his organs placed back within his body, it was found that he was effectively immune to the sedative they had given him to prepare him for surgery. He fought furiously against his restraints when the anesthetic gas was brought out to put him under. He managed to tear most of the way through a four inch wide leather strap on one wrist even though the weight of a 200 pound soldier was holding that wrist as well it took only a little more anesthetic than normal to put him under but the instant his eyelids fluttered and closed his heart stopped in the autopsy of the test subject that died on the operating table it was found that his blood had tripled the normal level of oxygen his muscles that were still attached to his skeleton were badly torn and he had broken nine bones in his struggle to not be subdued most of them were from the force his own muscles had exerted on them The second survivor had been the first of the group of five to start screaming. His vocal cords destroyed, he was unable to beg or object to surgery, and he only reacted by shaking his head violently in disapproval when the anesthetic gas was brought near him. He shook his head yes when someone suggested reluctantly they try the surgery without anesthetic. He did not react for the entire six-hour procedure by placing his abdominal organs and attempting to cover them with what remained of his skin. A surgeon presiding stated repeatedly that it should be medically possible for the patient to still be alive. One terrified nurse assisting the surgery stated that she had seen the patient's mouth curl into a smile several times whenever his eyes met hers. When the surgery ended, the subject looked at the surgeon and began to wheeze loudly, attempting to talk while struggling. Assuming this must be something of drastic importance, the surgeon had a pen and pen and pen and pad fetched so the patient could write his message. It was simple keep cutting. The other two test subjects were given the same surgery, both without anesthetic as well. Although they had to be injected with a paralytic for the duration of the operation, the surgeon found it impossible to perform the operation while the patients laughed continuously. Once paralyzed, the subjects could only follow the attending researchers with their eyes. The paralytic cleared of their system in an abnormally short period of time and they were soon trying to escape their bonds. The moment they could speak, they were again asking for the stimulant gas. The researchers tried asking why they had injured themselves why they had ripped out their own guts and why they wanted to be given the gas again. The only response was given was, I must remain awake. All three subject restraints were reinforced and they were placed back into the chamber awaiting determination as to what should be done with them. The researchers, facing the wrath of their military benefactors for having failed the stated goals of their project, considered euthanizing the surviving subjects. The commanding officer, a former KGB agent, is set saw potential and wanted to see what would happen if they were put back on the gas. The researchers strongly objected, but they were overruled. In preparation for being sealed in the chamber again, the subjects were connected to an EEG monitor and had their restraints padded for long-term confinement. To everyone's surprise, all three stopped struggling the moment it was let slip that they were going back on the gas. It was obvious at this point all three were putting up a great struggle to stay awake. One of the subjects that could speak was humming loudly and continuously. The mute subject was straining his legs against the leather bonds with all his might First left, then right, then left again for something to focus on. The remaining subject was holding his head off his pillow and blinking rapidly. Having been the first to be wired for EEG, most of the researchers were monitoring his brainwaves in surprise. They were normally they were normal most of the time, but sometimes flatlined inexplic- inexplicably. It looked as if he were repeatedly suffering from brain death before returning to normal. As they focused on paper scrolling out of the brainwave monitor, only one nurse saw his eyes slip shut at the same moment his head hit the pillow. His brain, waves, his brain waves immediately changed to that of a deep sleep, then flatlined for the last time as his heart simultaneously stopped. The only remaining subject that could speak started screaming to be sealed, and now his brain waves showed the same flatlines as one who had just died from falling asleep. The commander gave the order to seal the chamber with both subjects inside, as well as three researchers. One of the named three immediately drew his gun and shot the commander point blank in the eyes, then turned the gun on the mute subject and blew his brains out as well. He pointing his gun at the remaining subject, still restrained to a bed, as the remaining member of the medical and research team fled the room. I won't be locked in here with these things, not with you, he screamed at the man strapped to the table. What are you, he demanded, I must know. The subject smiled. Have you forgotten so easily, the subject asked? We are you. We are the madness that lurks within you all, begging to be free at the moment in your deepest animal mind. We are what you hide f- from in your beds every night. Wear what you sedate into silence and paralyze when you go to the nocturnal haven where we cannot tread. The researchers paused, then aimed at the subject's heart and fired. The EEG flatlined as the sublet- subject weakly choked out, so nearly free.
0: Dun-dun. Russian sleep experiment made me pu- 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 piss my pants. It's a, cre- it's a creepy story. It's a great story. At least it is a very, least is a very creepy story. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this Barely Ghoul podcast. A little bit of a different one. Not as many funnies. Not as much back and forth from Papa Judah and Papa Ben. But it's spooky. I prefer Daddy Ben, actually. Not as much back and forth from Papa Judah and Daddy Ben. Hmm, that's better. That might be the scariest thing we've heard tonight. <laughs> well, I hope you guys enjoyed uh, listening to us tell stories. What you, what'd you think, Ben? What would you think of the stories? I think the stories were all very good. Yeah. I think... Yeah. The, I mean, the Russian sleep experiment is, like, uh, untoppable. Yeah, That's, you can't beat the Russian sleep experiment. It's it was so great. good. It's so very visual. nearly free. Like, right from the beginning, talking about, like, the the four inches of water that it accumulated. Mm-hmm. it's just, like, ugh, yucky. Yep. Yep. But, uh... Anyways... Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for listening to the Barely Ghoul podcast. And And I don't know what we're doing next week, but hopefully it's even scarier because it will be the big one for Halloween. It'll be right right before Halloween. And, And hopefully Ben and I are together. Maybe we'll get Josh in there. Maybe we'll do a... I don't know. Maybe... I don't know.
1: Something spooky.
0: Maybe we'll do a candy. Maybe we'll watch a spooky movie and do a candy review. We'll rate different kinds of Halloween candy. We could... We could do that. We could try and find some sort of haunted thing. I don't
1: know how many things will be open now. But I don't know. We'll see. We'll try and figure it out. We'll we'll
0: f- we'll find something good for you we'll guys. We'll brainstorm we and and it'll be it'll be good. It'll be it'll put you in the spooky mood. Okay. Okay.
1: Well, thanks for listening, guys. Thanks and we'll for see listening. you next week. Boo! <laughs>